Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm Alice Stoltz. In this episode, we get expert advice on starting a property portfolio. And then we hear about the best ways to give your home a bit of character and personality. It seems property investing is making something of a comeback. Investor lending is on the rise for the first time in years and properties are selling like hotcakes in today's climate. And contrary to what we sometimes hear in the media, you don't need to be a mogul with 25 properties to be considered an investor. So where do you begin on this journey and what are the risks involved for the average person? To unpack and explain the world of owning a portfolio, founder and managing director of Empower Wealth, Ben Kingsley is with us today. Ben, welcome back to Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me back, Alice. Now, Ben, investing is all anyone's talking about at the moment in my circles, that's for sure. So what does someone need to get started if they want to become a property investor and begin to build a portfolio? Yeah, so the best thing to do is we call it the ABCD. Now, let me explain what they stand for. Asset selection, borrowing power, cash flow management and defence. So everything sort of wraps up into this nice little um, sort of example of these letters. And we normally start, first of all, with cash flow management. So if we're going to invest in property, we shouldn't be thinking about speculating in property. It's usually a long-term investment. There are lots of costs in getting into property, such as stamp duty and setup fees and legal costs, et cetera, and also costs in getting out of property as well. So the first thing we want to do is make sure we've got some cash flow and some equity or a deposit to be able to get in. So that's number one. Number two is the borrowing story. Now, the borrowing story is around, well, how much can we borrow and how much can we afford? So that's the marriage of, you know, understanding your money management and making sure that you're not overstretching yourself. And then number three is the asset selection. And so making sure not every property makes for a good investment. So there are some risks out there. And we'll talk about those later. But asset selection, location selection, those types of things. And finally, defence is about making sure that it's a significant investment. So we want to mitigate the risks where we can. So things like making sure the property is insured with, um, you know, sort of contents and building in, in, uh, insurances and then also potentially tenant insurance protections and rental protections and those type of things. So if we can do that. That's the broad brush strokes that you want to be doing when it comes to investing in property. Okay. And Ben, why is this such a hot topic at the moment? We know investor lending has increased recently. Why is that in your opinion? Well, I think there's a couple of factors. One is predominantly that, you know, where do we put our money to get a return? So um, with interest rates so low, that means that any sort of deposits that we have in the bank isn't necessarily giving us a strong return. So those people who now have gainful employment and a little bit more confidence post-pandemic are now sort of then saying, okay, I want my money to give me a slightly better return. And everyone in Australia has a love affair with property. It's the great barbecue topic. So property has delivered steady, low volatile, long-term returns, and it's passed a, its biggest test in regards to the pandemic. So I think a lot of people are looking at property to sort of say, it's as safe as houses, as they say. It's got land content usually, bricks and mortar investments. So traditionally, it's given us those types of returns. And I think people are looking at that in terms of where they get the best results. So could we say that the pandemic sort of helped properties' reputation, I suppose? You know, we did see those 
overly cautious pessimistic drops predictions. Presented. Yes, they were out there, weren't they, Alice? Yes. Yeah, of thirty percent, and now we're seeing thirty percent growth and blah 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 blah. And I do think though that people got battered by the share market, but really, I think a lot of people found that property was probably that, as you said, safe as houses, and it did offer that security at a time that people really needed it as a really sound investment. Do you think that has been true during the pandemic? Yeah, I think I think obviously, you know, we we saw that sort of traditional panic attacks that normal people have, but property's not easy to transact. That's why you see volatility in the share market, right? There, It's a live market. It's easy to transact mm. property. There's a whole preparation program that needs to go on. You've got to get your contract of sale ready. You've got to get your, your vendor statement or all the supporting documentations together. And it takes weeks to be able to sort of pull all that together. Now, that that is a bit of a safety net for property when everyone's panicked. And so what we did see was um, this whole sunk cost bias, which means that people weren't willing to to basically put their properties on the market with that unknown. So we, we did see supply drop off significantly um, and demand sort of also uh, sit on the fence. But once we started to open up a bit, what we did see is a rush of demand as interest rates got down to these record low levels. And really that supply story hasn't lifted up yet. So we've got more demand in the market, limited supply, and that's where we're seeing price pressures because of obviously cheap money at the moment, and then that's uh, affording property prices to move up. Mm. Ben, a lot of people are also talking about investing with someone else. So when it comes to purchasing property, particularly if one's looking at it from an investment perspective, is going out on your own, in your opinion, better than investing as a group or, or a company? Yeah, so speaking from experience and having you know looked after thousands and thousands of clients through our business, um, it's really clear to us that if you are going to go into an investment with family or friends, you want to be really clear about the rules. And the, the biggest rules are how much money are we going to put into this? What are the ongoing costs that we all contribute? And then ultimately, how long are we going to hold this investment? So it's a great little idea that a lot of people have. You know, let's let's jump into property in two or three years. You know, we'll make a killing and we'll get out. That's not how property works. It's it's usually you will be losing money in those early years. So if you don't have a 10-year horizon, then I would recommend these joint ventures and these types of arrangements to avoid them like the plague. The vast majority of people should be investing by themselves or with, say, their significant other. That's potentially the best way in which we see the best results in regards to investing because really investing should be for the long term. We're not speculating in property. Those who speculate in property, there's just as many winners as there are losers. Those who stay in the property market for the longer term, and we're talking 20, 30, 40 years, really enjoy the benefits of that long-term capital growth as well as receiving that passive income from the rent and then retiring the debt. So all of a sudden, you've got this beautiful supplementary income that's also working towards uh, providing you a comfortable retirement with your super. Mm. Ben, what type of properties would you recommend people consider in your lovely, elegant map of that ABCD, which I love, by the way, you talked about the asset that you are buying. What do you think you would recommend when it comes to what people should consider? So I think that there's always an opportunity depending on your household income in terms of what options you've got, right? So we do know that the land value closer to the major metropolitan and then the knowledge centres um, are where, you know, the higher land values are. And that has traditionally been the case. And then we get this ripple effect where values move out further and further. So 
where you've got constrained supply of land, um, that's ultimately where we do see the, the better performances of returns because we don't have a risk of oversupply. So um, we have seen some risks of late in medium and high density. That's a supply side risk. So we're seeing an example where if there is rezoning of a particular area and there's lots of apartments built, we, we definitely see static capital growth for a period of time. So my view is always it's a tailored solution for each household. So if you've got double household income, professional incomes, and lots of surplus cash, you might be looking for a more rarer asset, you know, sort of a more sophisticated or closer in location where all the amenities and lifestyle drivers are all there. And, and that's obviously you're going to be paying a little bit more. So that's where you obviously will have to supplement the shortfall out of your income. But those people who are, you know, looking to get in in the earlier stages, that's not necessarily, you know, capital growth may not be their, their number one priority. So there might be an asset that has a more balanced view of a lower price point, which also means that the rent is covering a lot of the outgoing costs as well. So it is a bit of a case-by-case basis. Um, Some of the areas that you do want to avoid, um, potentially student accommodation, and at the moment, certainly the medium and high density, you want to be doing your research about the quality of that property and its uniqueness, because if it can be replicated quickly and easily, that's that oversupply risk you've got. But if you've got uninterrupted views of the Harbour City or the Opera House or whatever, and it can never be built out. Those types of medium and high density properties still perform quite well from a capital growth point of view. So that is why it's a it's a case by case, but land is the number one game and, and certainly getting longer term capital growth, having a, a good land component, uh, not too far out where there's vacant land is going to be a big driver for future growth. And Ben, how much faith do we put in the fact that a lot of infrastructure is apparently coming in the decades to come? I mean, obviously, we know a lot of buyers are lured out a bit further out of the metro cities to where there is more land and a lot more space in that, but the infrastructure is not yet there. How much confidence should people put into that idea? Like, what if it actually never comes and they've got this big plot of land, but they can't get anywhere? It seems like not a great investment, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's good examples. And and of course, I mean, those, those people are selling land, are selling the vision of what's coming. There's going to be a big new shopping centre. Someone's talking to Westfield. There's a new rail line that's coming out here or there's going to be a big bridge or a bypass that's going to be built. It's going to be amazing out here. Well, the reality is you can be waiting for a long time for that infrastructure to arrive um, when you get the critical numbers that, that support those businesses to invest in those areas. So the safer areas to invest are usually the areas that are well established maybe have suburbs that are anything between maybe 30 years old to you know almost 80 years old as suburbs because they've got they've got what we call the backfill there's more investment going into there they've got a, a nice blend of of density in you know that supports the Thai restaurant and the Indian restaurant and and all of the lifestyle drivers that come with those particular locations so if you move out into outer suburbia, yep, the schools might be brand new and, that, and that, all of that's great, but you still run the risk of low demand and potentially oversupply, which can potentially impact your short-term returns. And then you just really have to wait until that full wave of population gets out there over a longer period of time. So you've got an opportunity cost that you've got to be considering there. And that's why 
we always like to buy in established areas rather than new estate and greenfield areas. So, Ben, as people are sort of mapping this out for their future, is it worth them thinking sort of two to three investment properties ahead, do you think? Like, you know, just on paper, I'm not talking about obviously purchasing, but is that is that valuable? It's a, it's a wonderful question, Alice, and I wish more people would ask it because what you're talking about here is basically plan to become what you plan to become. So, you know, like in anything, when a business like BHP decides to build a mine, they're not just thinking in the next two years or whatever, they're actually thinking about the long sustainability and profitability of that mine. We as households and we as investors should be thinking the same way. So we always say start with the end goal in mind. So if that is, we want to have a passive income of $2,000 a week from the property portfolio, then the reality is that's that's potentially going to be three, maybe four properties that are bought over time. So if you can model out your your spending and coming back to that cash flow story, you can then start to say, okay, well, if my cash flow allows me to buy at this point in time, and then in three years' time, based on the performance of that property and how I manage my cash flow, that will give us another amount of equity that's available and some cash reserves available where that property is not costing as much. Then we can add the second property and then the third property. So, and then all of a sudden it's it's a matter of once you've got that portfolio, it's then about retiring that debt out and then effectively living off that passive income. So it's really exciting, you know, what a legacy you get to leave for yourself and your family. You know, it really is then thinking about, you know, what you can do with that money in terms of educational trusts and those types of things for the next generation coming through or sell it all and go on the best holidays of your life, right? And just teach your kids how to fish rather than feeding them is also an option there as well. Ben, just before I let you go, what are the risks about being an investor? Like what are the unexpected costs that owners should be prepared for as they're looking ahead to the future? Yeah, so the the main one that shows up in all of the data is obviously property prices falling and and having a negative equity position. So that's that's the big one. I mean, we all want to invest and, you know, we don't want to be paying interest on a loan and the property prices staying flat or going backwards. The other one that also comes up is around quality tenants and, and you know, getting, you know, tenant damage is, is something that, you know, worrying about tenants not paying or or damaging your asset. They're the, they're the sort of property focused ones. In terms of the other risks, you would also be thinking about overextending yourself and over leveraging with too much debt, trying to be a little bit too greedy, that can also get you into a, a bit of a mess. And finally, I think, you know, we've also got to talk about regulatory risk. And, you know, we we did see in 2017 when property prices got a little bit too hot that we got those macro prudential regulations coming in. And we do know that political parties have views around negative gearing and so forth. So any of those types of changes can potentially pose some future risk to the market. There's a bit of unknown around what will happen, the unintended consequences of any type of market reform. So we, we, we can't discount the idea that, you know, it's just going to be um, beers and skittles for the rest of the property journey, I suspect, with housing affordability becoming, a, you know, more and more of an issue over time, that there will be some tweaks to regulation. So we've got to be careful in terms of what that looks like as well. Mm. Ben, that was really fascinating. You've given us some great insights there and you've, um, you're have you going to spur me into action, so thank you. I'm going to pour a glass of wine and get those hard conversations with my husband. Thank Very you so good. much for your time, Ben. Absolute pleasure.
anything is possible in the world of interiors and that abundance of choice can be daunting. While on-trend finishes and furnishings may appear the safest in the sea of design and decor offerings, you might wind up with a place that looks a little bit like your neighbours. And no one wants to be ordinary when it comes to their home, we know that. So how exactly do you inject some personality and character into your home? To discuss this, we're joined by Domain's Lifestyle Editor, Ash Austin. Ash, welcome back to Property Unpacked. Thanks so much, Alice. It's great to be here. Now, Ash, often older homes come with a certain level of character just by virtue of age, and that's what people love about them, the idea that there's all this character in the floorboards or the windows or the doorways or the door handles. But we do know that newer homes don't have that. So how can people who live in a newer or more sort of generic home inject some fresh personality into them? Yeah, so you don't want to run the risk of your house looking the same as everyone else's on the street, but if you are buying off the plan or a project home, they do tend to be quite neutral and safe. So even from the outset, if you are buying off the plan, you could ask whether there could be some modifications made, you know, your own selections on flooring or bench tops or tiling. It may cost a little more from the outset, but it could save you money down the track. Of course, if that's not possible, then that's where furniture and decor come into play and and really make your home a reflection of yourself. Mm. And do you think it's little things like artwork or rugs or curtains and stuff like that? Like, do you think layering those pieces up are a good way to do that? Absolutely. So I would suggest not sort of rushing out and buying big ticket items when you first move in. So consider how you want the look and and the feel of your home to be. So it can be a really costly exercise and, and you don't want to buy a bunch of stuff and then it not fit with your personality or the way you want to live. So of course, artwork is a great way to inject some character in that individual sense of style. So you know whether you're an avid art collector or you're just dabbling, I would suggest you're following some artists on Instagram for some ideas and inspiration. And then when the timing's right, you can purchase those pieces that really reflect your style. And, and of course, looking outside the box towards murals and larger scale pieces, which you could commission, is very, very cool at the moment. Mm. I want to talk about that in a minute. But for, before we jump onto that, Ash, what about older homes? How do we sort of breathe fresh life into them, I suppose, without them going to that area where they might look a bit twee, you know, which again, no one wants to do. So how do we do that with with a bit of control? Yeah. So first up, I'd work out whether you want your house to feel like a calming sanctuary or more bright and energetic, you know, or a combination of the two, of course, because you can add those pops of bright color, but there's no point doing a statement red wall if that's the, the room that you guys wind down in as a family or, you know, perhaps having it too calm and sort of a bit bare because you still want to have that warmth. I mean, a a good way is adding decorative lighting can really help. So don't go with the safe down lights throughout the house. You know, you could build on different types of lighting to really um, to change the mood in the room. I think that's a worthwhile investment, isn't it, getting sort of a good electrical plan set up and that way you can easily update that in the decade to come that I think we do definitely see lighting trends come in and out. But if you have that pendant or whatever in the right position, you know, your downlight's always there but you've got a pendant which can get updated, you know, every few years if you so desire. Absolutely. And as you've seen in a, in a lot of home renovations, they sometimes make the largest impact 
dinner room, when you, when you see that addition, you go, wow, that really uplifted the look of the room. Mm. And I, you know what else I love, Ash, is sort of the, the stories that come behind things that one falls in love with in a house. And I think that's a really important part when you're trying to add character to a home to think about what it is that resonates with you or say, you know, you know, I bought that piece at the end of COVID because I felt like I needed uplifting or whatever it was, or I bought that piece on travel somewhere, you know, when I was traveling around Australia or overseas or something, that there's a little story behind what influences you at that time, I think is really a lovely time stamp that you can add to your house. Absolutely. And you don't want to be just going to the furniture store and picking every piece for a room. You want to slowly collect that stuff and pick furniture with a history. Maybe your family went away for the weekend um, out into a regional town and you found a really great coffee table and that will remind you of that great weekend you had away or you know, you could create a picture gallery with all mismatched frames of, of family moments and, and mementos you've picked up, you know, postcards along the way without it looking too kitsch. It can be quite a classic move and, and really work with the other pieces in your home. Now, Ash, artwork, as you touched on earlier, is a great way to put your stamp on a space. And you can think outside the box, can't you, in terms of full-scale murals. Can you talk a little bit about this trend that people are doing when it comes to using a whole wall indoor or outdoor for art? Yeah, so we've seen a trend towards people commissioning street artists to do essentially that gone are the days of those sort of graffiti artworks that you might see in the train viaduct. They're moving away from that and they are really quite beautiful pieces with huge impact. So oftentimes we'll see streetscapes that are quite urban or otherwise we've seen um that there was a home recently in Melbourne for sale and they had a beautiful mural of Gigi Hadid, the, the model, in the internal courtyard. And it was really striking. I'm not sure if the owner had sort of a personal affliction for her or she is just a beautiful woman, so they thought it would be a nice artwork, but it really is a striking piece. Mm. Do you know how one goes about sort of commissioning that, Ash? Do, do, sort of, do you find a list of street artists that you really like the work of and then talk about an idea or or do you sort of do they have carte blanche to do what they think is appropriate for the space? Yeah, I think it would be uh, like commissioning anything. You'd be working with an artist you like and and going to and fro. So most um, street artists will, in inverted commas, tag their their name or the handle or their their artist name um, on a piece. So you could look them up online, follow them on social media for ideas and inspiration, and then you could reach out to them and perhaps have them come and have a look at the space you've got and. See see what what they would suggest and if that matches with what the kind of aesthetic you're after. Mm. And I know for a lot of people that they definitely in Melbourne where there's quite a strong um, street art community is they've certainly added value to homes where they have had really distinctive art um, if they've backed the right artist and this up-and-coming artist actually turns out to be really add a lot of cachet and um, and ultimately value to that property. Absolutely. And I guess it's similar when you buy from a smaller artist who's just starting out with any kind of medium, you know, sculptors or painters, it's, um, you know, you always have that that surprise when they uh, they really boom in the market and then you've got this beautiful piece that's, you know, worth quite a bit of money. Mm. Well, I'm, it's one trend that I'm all for. I think it's a great way of adding, you know, your own personality and style to a home, which might, you know, need a bit of a oomph given to it. I think it's a fantastic way of doing it. So, Ash, thank you so much for talking with us today on Property Unpacked. Thanks so much, Alice. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for new episodes dropping every week. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.